In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, and we'll start with the, uh, or we'll go with to the hymn of the month. We give thee but thine own. We give thee but thine own, whatever the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. May we thy bounties thus as stewards true receive, and gladly as thou blessest us to thee our first fruits give. May we hearts are bruised and dead, and homes are bare and cold. And lambs for whom the shepherd bled are straying from the fold. To comfort and to bless, to find a balm for woe, to tend the lone and fatherless, his angels work below the captive to release to god the lost to bring to teach the way of life and peace it is a christ-like thing and we believe thy word, though dim our faith may be. Whatever we, we do, O Lord, we do it unto thee. Right, and we'll continue with the catechism memory work. What do you believe according to these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain even in heaven as if Christ, our dear Lord, dealt with us himself. And, uh, yeah, we'll go down to the Bible memory work. As far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103:12. Let us pray. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And, uh, oh, it looks like Luther's morning, dis- prayer, morning prayer disappeared. But we'll say it together. If you know it, say it with me. If you don't, then you can pray in your heart. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me stay also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids, go off to Sunday school. And in Sunday school, you're going to talk about folding your hands during prayer and not running around. All right. Um, in that uh, in that hymn of the month, uh, one of the this is our last time to sing it, by the way, because next next uh, Sunday will be October. Right, and uh, I have a good hymn picked out for October. It's um, "Glorious Things of You Are Spoken." Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion City of our God. It will wake you up on Sunday morning. So that's, a, that's, the, that's the goal. Um, anyway, or every morning, if you sing it every morning, right? and then you you can uh, memorize the hymn. So um, anyway, the, this last stanza, and we believe Thy word. Though dim our faith may be, whatever we do for thine, O Lord, we do it unto thee. Uh, it reminds me of what Christ says, uh, right, um, when he's uh, talking to the goats and he says, uh, he separated out the sheep and the goats and, he, and, and they say, when, when did we see you uh, lost and not help you? When did we see you starving and not feed you, right? And he says, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, right? And... Um, is that whatever we do for thine, O Lord, we do it unto thee. So when we think about stewardship, which is what this hymn is about, right? Um, there can be this disconnect between giving to the church and then how is that serving the Lord? I mean, we have often talk about giving to the Lord's house or we're giving it to the Lord. But realistically, everyone kind of knows, right, that when you give money to the church, it's not like we're sending it up to heaven. You know, it's not like there's a, one of those bank tubes that you put your check in and just you know goes up to heaven or something like that, right? Um, it, where does it go? It goes into the region's bank account <laughs> for the general fund for the church, and it pays salaries and pays for printer paper and all sorts of things, right? Well, um, what's that? A new printer. A new printer, maybe. We'll see. Um, it, hey, it's worked two weeks straight, so. Uh, don't don't curse us. Let's yeah. Yeah. Um, but what is that doing, right? It's it it is serving Christ, right? Because um, this is the Lord's house, and um, in in one sense, right, the the church is the least of these, 
Uh, and what, when, we, when we serve what the Lord calls us to do, to gather together, to celebrate his word and his, his sacrament, then we're serving him. And uh, it doesn't, this is how the Lord works, right? The Lord is incarnate. He comes down from heaven, is incarnate in the flesh and works through earthly means. And, and so he continues to do that for us. And when we, when we steward, right, it is giving to Christ, right? Even though we're not sending something up to heaven, we are, we are giving to Christ in this way. And, and that's a good thing. So that's what I was thinking about in that hymn. Um, and you can continue to think about that. Stewardship Sunday was, of course, last Sunday. But uh, the pledge cards have been handed out and can still be handed out. There's still more available if you didn't get one last week. And um, what did I say? Yeah, you have you have till October 15th to turn them in. October 15th to turn them in. So plenty of time. Um, there's also a Bible study that was or is in the September Messenger uh, that you can take with you to help fill that out. You can do the Bible study and, and fill it, help fill, fill out your pledge form. All right. Uh, so enough about that. In the Catechism memory work, uh, we have this. Uh, from the Confession and Absolution section, or the Office of the Keys uh, section of the Catechism, what do you believe according to these words? And uh, the words that he's referencing there are John 20, when Jesus breathes on the, the disciples and says to them, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Right? That in, in John 20, after Jesus' resurrection, he repeats what he already told them in Matthew 16, which is that the pastors, the apostles, are given this command by Christ to forgive and to retain sins in his church. And um, the, the thing that's common both in Matthew 16 and in John 20 is this repetition or this connection rather, and it, it kind of has to do with what we just talked about with stewardship, that there's this connection between heaven and earth. That when Jesus institutes something according to his word on earth, that it's also true in heaven. That Jesus doesn't, in other words, Jesus doesn't lie, right? So if Jesus says, this is true here, that means it's also true when Jesus is reigning in heaven. And so when pastors, according to their divine command, forgive sins or retain sins, right? Exercise church discipline. That that's just as true in heaven as it is on earth, right? Now, if a pastor doesn't do that according to the divine command, in other words, if he does it wrongly, right? So if he, uh, if someone is unrepentant, openly unrepentant, but he still forgives them, that's not true in heaven, right? It has to be according to the truth. Um, it has to be according to how Jesus instituted it, right? But... Um, this connection of, of heaven and earth is, is, is very important, right? Jesus repeats that. Um, and that's where the phrase office of the keys comes from, right? Is in Matthew 16, he says to the disciples, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, right? But what is Jesus always saying about the kingdom of heaven? That he's brought it down to earth. So any questions or comments on any of those things? All right. Let's then... Get back to the prophets of Judah. So we're continuing along with these prophets. And let's see if my... Yep. So there. 
We started talking about Micah last week, and we'll just do a very quick review here. So uh, Micah prophesies at the same time as Isaiah. So if you remember some of the things we talked about when we talked about Isaiah, same kind of context, that actually things are going okay for Judah for a part of this time. Right. And so whenever Micah and Isaiah, when they prophesy destruction and disaster, that's going to sound a little odd to the people of Judah. But then uh, what we talked about partly with Micah last week is that he, he don't, not only prophesies destruction and disaster for Judah, but also for the northern kingdom, Israel. And if you look at that, um, if you happen to have one of those, I don't even have it with me here. One of those uh, charts, Steve has one over there. Yeah, one of those there. Um, you can see that Micah prophesies, even though he's prophesying in Judah, he prophesies at the same time as Israel is going to be taken captivity by the Assyrian Empire. And so what that shows is that what he's saying to Judah, and then he also says about Israel, gets proven true in his lifetime. And so uh, that's going to – it should, right, make Judah, the people of Judah, kind of perk up and say, hey, look, if this happened to Israel like Micah said it would, and he's saying it's going to happen to us too, then maybe it's actually going to happen, right? Okay, so um, that's Micah's context. Micah is a – we're going to get to this. We haven't gotten there yet, but um, – the word, the name Micah means who is like God, which is something he says in chapter 7. So it's kind of a nice bookend because at the beginning of the book, you get the prophet Micah, right? This is the prophecy of, of Micah. And then at the end of the book, so this is the prophecy of who is like God. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 7, you get this wonderful verse about who is like our God. So um, that's a kind of nice bookend. Uh, we talked about how he's in a suburb of, Ju- of uh, Jerusalem in Morasheth, and um, I think that's all the background stuff mainly. Okay, so some of the main themes of Micah are this uh, remnant theology, right? We, we did actually talk about Matthew 16 a little bit there. Matthew 16 keeps coming up today. Um, where in that, in that same, actually, when Jesus is talking to the disciples there on the mountain, he, he pr- promises, right, there's always going to be a remnant. Right, this is a promise in the Old Testament. Um, we talked about that in the key, some of the key passages too, 12 to 13, 5, 7 to 8, that there's this remnant that is going to remain, um, this faithful remnant uh, dispersed, the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora dispersed across Babylonia, but that there is going to be a faithful remnant that's going to return and through which the Messiah is going to come. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, right? There will be a remnant. Now, just because there's a remnant doesn't mean there won't be disaster and judgment, right? So the remnant is actually there because there's disaster and judgment, right? So, um, right, if if there was no disaster, if there was no judgment, if there was no captivity, there, there would be no need to even talk about a remnant, right? They would just be there. But... Uh, because the Lord is faithful not just in his mercy, but also faithful in his judgment, 
there is this need for a remnant. Okay, so uh, remnant and then disaster and judgment for um, all of their sins, right? And when we when we went through the kings, we saw all the heinous things that Judah and Israel both took part in. Um, and then, of course, we have these very clear messianic prophecies in the book of Micah, which is what we ended on last time. I think um, I, I didn't write it down, but the last key passage we looked at was uh, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, which is all about uh, the, the Messiah coming, right? And we have that the, the famous Christmas passage for Micah, right, in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Right? So the one to be the ruler, right? Sounds very similar to Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, right? The one who will be the ruler in Judah, he is going to come from this small town, right? This is where we get the, the song, right? A little town of Bethlehem, right? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler of Israel. Okay, so um, we have the the theme of, of Jesus, right? Very clearly, especially in, in chapter five there. And then, of course, the theme that's, uh, very common throughout the prophets. Now, interestingly, after we get done with Micah here, we're going to look at Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is kind of a nice reprieve from uh, Isaiah and Micah because Habakkuk follows a very different structure and a very, very different uh, themes than than Isaiah and Micah. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but it's very similar to Isaiah. You have this back and forth it's very lutheran in this way of sin and grace or law and gospel right where micah he'll start with a very harsh judgment and then he'll end his prophecy with this very clear promise of mercy so um this kind of back and forth law and gospel is going on in micah okay so um and you can even see that in the outline of the book so chapters one through three are basically about disaster coming upon judah and israel and the other nations Chapters 4 and 5 are about the salvation and how that's going to be accomplished. And then chapter 6 and 7 is kind of a microcosm of that. It's disaster then leading to salvation. Okay, so very, very creative, right? <laughs> disaster, salvation, disaster, salvation. But um, So that that's where we were in Micah. We already looked at some of those key passages um, about the judgment, about the remnant, about the Christ. Now... We want to just finish up in this last section looking at two more key passages from chapter 6 and 7. So the first thing we're going to look at, and this this is a very, uh, you don't hear, I don't hear it in Lutheran churches a lot, but I hear it in other churches um, quoting, quoting this verse. And um, it's often used of people who are... Uh, promoting some kind of like social justice of some kind, right? So you'll probably know what I'm talking about when we get to, it's verse eight is the verse I'm thinking of, but um, let's let's read the whole thing. So uh, Micah six, starting at verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Right, so you've probably heard that last part before. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. All right. Um, by the way, if you're if you're looking for the book of Maya, Micah, it's um, it's right before Nahum. If you end up seeing Nahum, and right after Jonah. So, it's uh, the, those minor prophet books are hard to find because they're all pretty small, and but they're in the back of the Old Testament there. So if you see Jonah or Nahum, you're close. If you got the skinny uh, Bible, it's 659. There you go. All right. So anyway, um, what is uh, what are we talking about here with this chapter 6, 6 through 8? Well, first of all, what he's uh, talking about is hearkening back to some of the, the judgments that he's already given in uh, chapters 1 and 2. And three, that one of the problems, actually really the perennial problem of the people of Abraham, right? So whether you're in Judah, the sons of Jacob, right? Whether you're in Judah or whether you're in Israel at the divided kingdom, the perennial problem that they have is some kind of Pharisaism, right? And this is exactly what Jesus has to deal with the most. In his ministry, whenever Jesus uh, comes and begins his ministry, yes, there are the Sadducees, right? Who um, they're kind of the the liberals, if you will. They don't believe what the the scriptures say. They don't believe in the resurrection, right? They don't believe in a literal resurrection. Um, you have like the Samaritans who have a weird canon of scripture, so they have kind of a weird theological problem, right? They like reject a lot of the prophets. They just have the, the books of Moses and Isaiah, basically. Uh, you have, um, of, of course, you have some Gentile, you know, you have Gentiles, which, you know, have all sorts of weird backgrounds and theological problems. But the thing that Jesus deals with the most in, in his ministry is the Pharisees, right? These, uh, and the, the Sanhedrin, these Jewish people that believe that they can get to heaven by following the law, right? And that when they follow their law, the rest of their lives can look like whatever they want to do as long as they've done the certain things, right? And so this exists, this problem um, of Pharisaism, the, the way I normally summarize it is having a system by which you don't need Christ to get to heaven, right? Having a system by which you don't need Christ to get to heaven. Now that can look a lot of different ways. So for the for the Pharisees in Jesus' time, that looks like religious rituals being the system, right? I think in our day, our system is a lot different than that, right? Our system is not religious rituals, but people are still Pharisees, right? People still believe I'm going to go to heaven without Jesus, but their system of righteousness is actually like 
way easier than the Pharisees, right? Our modern-day Pharisaism is actually this, this more this form of licentiousness that um, basically all I have to do is just kind of exist and not be a terrible person, and then I'll probably go to heaven, right? Um, we have we have much more of this universalism today as kind of our Pharisaism than the Pharisees, right? At least the, I mean in, in this case. The Pharisees maybe were a little bit um, better than our Pharisees today. That in, in Jesus' time, they at least recognized that not everyone was going to go to heaven. But um, anyhow, this still exists back way before Jesus' time um, in in Judah and Israel. And what's their system of righteousness, right? They they believe that as long as they kind of continue to some degree to follow the laws of Moses, right? They continue to some degree to make these sacrifices. Um, in the in the temple, um, that that it'll be fine. But it doesn't really matter if they mix in with other foreign nations, right? With it with the other pagan practices of the other nations, uh, they just don't really believe it matters much, right? And so this is what Micah is going after here: um, is what does God want from you? Okay, what does His law actually require of you? And and He's going to show here. That, and this is this is something that Hebrews makes abundantly clear, is that the sacrifices of the temple and the ritual practices that Moses established, and that not not they were actually there before Moses, but that Moses wrote down, you know, and and, and were given to my, Moses to write down, the system of sacrifices in the temple and things, those were not for salvation, those were to point to Christ who was to come, but they were never meant for salvation. Right. This is uh, this is very similar sounding to what what David says in Psalm 50. But what he's getting at here is that the Lord does not actually care about those sacrifices in one sense. Right. The Lord institutes them to point to the fact that blood is needed to cover sin. But the Lord doesn't need the blood of an animal. Right. Okay. so what does he say? He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Right? And the, the rhetorical answer is no. Right? God, God doesn't need any of that. Right? This is, you you kind of got to read the background of Psalm 50 on this, right? The, the cattle on a thousand hills is mine, says the Lord. Why do I need some one-year-old calf from you? I have the cattle on a thousand hills. God made the cattle. They're already his. Right? This is what we talk about with stewardship a lot, is that everything we have is already God's. We're just stewarding it for him. Okay. So um, will the Lord be pleased with these things? Of course not. And then he actually uh, he gives this really, he kind of you know stabs the screwdriver in and then kind of turns it around, right? Um, he says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What's one of the things that Judah and Israel particularly struggled with when they started worshiping the bells and the Asherah? Child sacrifice, right? And so what he's saying here is, look, you think, you think you're so holy because you're willing to sacrifice your children? That's not what God wants. Right? That's not what his law teaches. 
Um, and so then, then he, he, he gives these rhetorical kind of questions, and then, and then he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is very similar to when Jesus summarizes the law. right? What are the greatest commandments? What is good? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same thing that Micah is doing as he's um, and and so so notice what he's doing here is he's um, he's broadening out the law, right? So it's kind of like a funnel, right? Um, that when Judah was thinking about the law. You know, they were thinking about all these individual things that they had to do, and it was all very tight and very narrow, right? I just got to make this sacrifice. I just got to not do this work on this day, you know, so on and so forth. But he broadens out the law and says, okay, what is all that actually about, right? What are the Ten Commandments actually about? And it's about love, right? And what effect does that have to broaden out the law like that? It has two effects. One, and what Micah's main purpose here is, I think, is it catches everyone in sin. Right? You can't you can't avoid this. Right? None of us has loved perfectly. None of us has done justice, loved mercy, and walked humbly before our God every day, every hour, every second. Right? None of us has done that. We've all become prideful, thought that we were God, not God himself. We've all not been merciful to our neighbor when we should have been. We've all acted unjustly, right? It, it catches everyone in sin. The other thing it does, however, is it also broadens out our possibilities of how we can love rightly, right? It shows us uh, what is truly good, right? What is truly good is not just trying to kind of come up with some system um, that's, you know, a checklist system that I can be done with, right? And and then not have to worry about. But what is truly good, what the Lord truly desires, is this bigger, broader love, right? And so we can always think more about how we can love mercy, how we can do justice and how we can walk humbly before our God, right? There's way more possibilities, right? Um, it applies to every part of life, right? So, uh, if for so just for instance, right? If um, if I'm a Pharisee and I just have this system of the law, and um, well, let's take let's take stewardship for instance, since we're we're finishing up stewardship month. Then I uh, think, okay, I'm supposed to give something to the church, and um, you know, but the New Testament doesn't give me any certain requirement, and so I'm just going to put five dollars in the plate every Sunday, right? And then I'll know I've done something. 
and you know I'm I'm fulfilling the law, right? There's no specific requirement on what that is, and so I'm just going to give like the bare minimum, right? I'm just going to put five dollars in the plate every Sunday. That's that's affordable, right? You know that the the most that that means in my life is that maybe I can't get a special coffee from Starbucks once a week or something like that, but you know. Bare minimum, $5 a, a, a week in the plate, right? And then I feel good about myself and I've done, I've done my duty, right? Um, what, is, what does love say about that, right? Love would say, how much can I give? How much can I serve the church with what the Lord has given me, Right? Now, that doesn't have to be like the Lord also gives you other vocations, right? So it's not like, oh, I, I'm going to give all my money to the church, right? And then I'm going to be poor and not be able to feed my family. That's not that's also not what the Lord wants because the Lord also wants you to love, uh, love your family. But what love says when it comes to different vocations in your life is how much can I love, right? What's what's the most I can do, right? Love doesn't say what can I do and get away with. Love says how's the best that I can love. What's the best way to use my my time, talents, and treasures to support the church, for instance, in stewardship, right? So, um, so the tithing. Yeah, go ahead. Is still a good guy for us to strive to, and if we can get to the point where we can give beyond tithing. Yeah, so specifically when it comes to um, the law in the scriptures as far as tithing goes, right? The word tithe literally means 10%, right? Um, And that was actually, you know, the kind of bare minimum system of the law in the the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, that's, that's done away with, right? So in the New Testament, the ritual laws fulfilled. Now, what's the, and this is exactly kind of what we're talking about, is that when you have what we call Christian freedom, right, which is this idea that okay, the law, we're not we're not under the condemnation of the law anymore because we have faith in Jesus to to forgive our sins. We have Christian freedom, and we're not bound under this ritual law anymore because. Uh, Christ has done away with that. What is that freedom for? Again, the freedom is not to return to Pharisaism, right? The freedom is not to return to the law and say, um, what's the bare minimum I can do, right? What's the system that I need to put in place to to, uh, be righteous, right? The freedom, what's that? Can. Right. You can. You will never be righteous. Right. Yeah. You. And, and, so, and really, what you're doing, if you try and use your freedom to uh, to love less, let's say, to come up with another system, then what you're doing is you're putting yourself back into bondage. Right. You're you're putting yourself into a place where you are then you're trying to do something you can't do. Right, you're back into bondage, but our, our what's that? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, what is that freedom for then? 
that freedom is to, to love more, right? That freedom is now, now we're free to love more and, and to love the best that we can. And so we're not bound under this, you know, 10% anymore. And I didn't mean just to talk about stewardship the whole time, but um, we're, we're free to love the best that we can. Now, practically, what does that look like? Well, take uh, the third commandment, for instance, instead, right? So um, the, in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament law, ritual law, there was a requirement to go to church on Saturday night, right? To, that's how the Sabbath was remembered, right? To, to go to church on Saturday night. Well, we're free from that, right? That's why we worship on Sunday mornings. We worship on the morning of the resurrection. Now, when the New Testament Christians... Uh, first experienced this freedom and stopped worshiping on Saturday night, did they start worshiping less than once a week? No. They worshiped once a week. They also they actually worshiped more than once a week. Every right? Day. right? They started worshiping. They, yeah, Acts 2, they gathered together every day, every day for the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Right? So it's not a freedom where you go backwards. Right? It's a freedom where you actually increase. And so the ten, so what I always I, I describe 10% as um, a starting point for stewardship. So and, and not that you are going to necessarily go more than 10%, but um, what I tell people normally is just you know make a budget, right? If you don't have a budget, you got to make a budget because otherwise you don't know what 10% is. Make a budget. Make sure that you can put food on the table. Make sure that your bills are paid, right? And then start with 10%. And then, because that's that's the biblical starting point, right? That's just the, the kind of standard tie. Start with 10% and then see how it is, right? If, if that 10% is making it to the point where you are struggling to put food on the table, right? Then back off, right? You, you have freedom, right? That, that it's, it is true freedom. If that 10% doesn't really affect your life that much, Maybe give a little bit more, right? Um, so it's a starting point, right? And uh, and that's but our freedom is not to say what's the the least I can do and get away with, right? Our freedom is to say what's the most I can love. Does that it's not how much you pay either? Because that won't get you into heaven. Right? No, of course not. In other words, if he is paying more or she's paying more than I am or I'm paying more than she is, it doesn't matter. It's not what you pay. No, of course not. Yeah, that's. It's not about being paid. You've already paid. Yeah. Yeah. The and that this is the distinction between law and gospel, right? That the 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 law is not what saves us. The the gospel is what saves us, right? The reason we're going to get into heaven is not because of a system of righteousness. The reason we're going to get into heaven is because Christ has come and paid paid the price for our sin. Right. And we believe that. He is going to save us no matter what. Right. No matter what. Right. And so if we pay or we don't pay, we've already paid. Right. He has paid for us. And right. And so we are paid for. And so actually, by the old law, we have nothing to do with that. Well, I wouldn't say we have nothing to do with it. So the 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 law is still instructive. Right. So the gospel, this is... um. Jesus changed the law. He did change the law, but he didn't. He, what does he say? He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right. 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 So the law still yeah. exists. 
And the law is still instructive. And th- this is exactly... But we can't follow the Jews. Yeah, so we... We can't do that because the, they have not... They, they are a chosen people, right? They're, they're the, God has chosen them to be his faithful. And if they cannot fulfill their promises and deceive the Lord like they have, then the whole idea is that they need to change to believe Christ, to accept Christ, and most of them don't. Yeah, well, that that's certainly that's certainly true. The um, like Talmudic Judaism today is a false religion, and and they need to repent and and turn to Christ if they want to be saved. There's no doubt about that. But I I always describe the Old Testament not as Jewish scripture, but as Christian scripture, because the the first Talmudic Jews, you know, the the Talmud's not actually written until like 300 A.D. Right, so you have the precursor to that, which is Pharisees, Pharisaism, right? But the the true children of Abraham, right? That what is what does Paul say in Galatians four? The true children of Abraham are those of faith, right? We are we are the children of Abraham, right? Abraham was a Christian because he believed in the promise of the Messiah. Moses was a Christian because he believed in the promise of the Messiah. He wasn't a Jew, right? Now ethnically, children of Abraham are Jews, right? But um, Jesus makes it very clear in John 8 it's not about bloodline. But anyway, that, that's kind of beside the point. My point here is that when we're saved, when we've been paid for, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we've been baptized, when we're his children, how then do we live? Right? Paul says, do you just continue uh, to sin as much as you want because now you have grace? Right? No, by no means. We who died to sin... Now live to Christ. And what does that life to Christ look like? How do you live as a Christian? Right? You don't go back to sin. You don't go back to Pharisaism. You continue forward in love. Now, how much you love and how good you love, that doesn't save you. But it's who you are. Right? As a Christian, love is who you are. Because God is love and he adopted you as his own child. Right? And so... Uh, again, this idea of Christian freedom, that Christ has bought us and made us free, what's that freedom for? Okay, so if you've been released from prison, now where are you going to go? You're going to walk back into the prison because you don't know how else to live? Or are you going to learn to live the way that God wants you to live? Right. So um, that that's the idea. Is Of course, we're, we're not saying that anything that you do saves you. Um, the the Bible very clearly teaches against that. Uh, but, I mean, it's like Ephesians 2, right, is a great summary of it. We're saved by grace through faith, not of our undoing as a gift of Christ, that we may then do the good works that he prepared for us to do beforehand. Right? So we're saved by grace through faith, but then we go and, and, then, and then we go on to good works. Right? Um, any... Questions on that? Where? What time is it? There we go. Um, let me. We'll go ahead and finish Micah, and then we'll get to Habakkuk next week. So, final key passage is going to be this uh, 718. 
Um, and we'll, we'll do 718 to 20. We don't have as much time to talk about it. That's all right. This is the final uh, three verses, by the way, of the, of, the, of the book. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Okay, so Micah, again, bookends the book, right? His name is who is like God. And then at the end of the book, he says, who is like our God, right? Who is like our God who passes it over iniquity, right? Only our God is the kind of God who forgives sin, right? And notice, by the way, we have that, that word again, the remnant, right? He will preserve the faithful, right? He will keep a remnant for himself. And he will pass over their transgression, right? This is exactly what we were just talking about, that, that Christ came to forgive sins. He came to pay the price. He passes over transgressions so that he can have a remnant for his inheritance, right? That he can have a people who will still be faithful. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. And notice how he calls back to history here. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And that that word where it says, um, I don't know what your Bible said. Does it say steadfast love? Does it say mercy at the end of verse 18? Last word in verse 18? Mercy. 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 Um, so the word there in, in Hebrew, it's kind of a fun word to say. Chesed. Chesed? Uh, anyway, that's beside the point. Um, it means uh, mercy. Sometimes it's translated steadfast love. Um, the, the, the way I like to say it is covenant love. Covenant love. It's the kind of love that God has for us. It's, it's like the love of a husband and wife. Right where you've made promises to each other, and the love is going to keep those promises. Right, the love is going to keep those promises, and that's um that's this that that's this kind of love, that he doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in keeping his promises. Kind of love, and then that's why he calls back to to Jacob and Abraham. Right, the the truth you gave to Jacob, the mercy you gave to Abraham, what you swore to our fathers. Right. This covenant that you made with Abraham, that you would make a great nation out of him, that through his son, Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He loves that kind of love, and he's going to keep that promise. right? And even though Judah is falling apart, and the Babylonians are going to come and take it captive, and everything's going to be, and the temple's going to be burned down and destroyed, he's going to keep his promises. He's going to retain a remnant. He's going to bring his Christ about. He's going to have grace on his people. He delights in that kind of love. All right. Uh, any final questions on Micah? We'll do Habakkuk next week. Yeah. On our divided kingdom sheet, I noticed that, you know, when the Assyrian captivity begins in 722, that uh, six years after that, Hezekiah becomes king, and he's a good king. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking it's because these prophets have come true, and everybody's going like, whoa. Yeah, that's that, that that's probably true. Um, I mean, of course, it's kind of an impossible question, but right. it's uh, that that is probably true in some ways, right? I mean, Hezekiah does listen to the prophets, and um, and he hears what they have to say, and he sees he probably sees with his own eyes what's happening just to the north of them, right? So uh, that's a good point. All right. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us by grace alone, that you have come and chosen us not of our good works or of anything that we could offer you. For everything that has been created, you have created and you sustain for us. We pray that you would help us then to be good stewards, to as those who have been saved by you live in love toward you and fervent love toward one another. We pray that you would bless us today as we gather for worship, that you would open the hearts and the minds of all who hear your word, and that you would bless the preaching of your word, that it may be fire and power, and would bless those who hear it. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.